Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Man, just listening. Um, I don't know if it sounds to you out there what it sounds to me up here hearing you singing just now backstage. Just like, man, what a blessing to worship together as a church family. Amen. You know, and it reminds me too that we're here and the church is not a building. It's not a space. The church of God is a people. And we are the church. And it's so good that no matter where we are, no matter what the environment no matter what the lighting, the sound, it's like, praise God that we can worship him together. And so, hey, I'd like to thank, just real quick, I didn't do this first service, but there is a team of people who, um, it's no small task to move our church gathering from one room to another. And just Pastor Isaiah, John, Nick, uh, others on staff, can we just thank them for being willing to be flexible? Great work. Um, it's uh, and I just, I'm so excited that for the changes that are happening, and I think you will be too when, when you see them in, in our sanctuary. Um, you know, I'm excited to be with you. My name is Phil. I'm the family pastor. Many of you know me. And uh, I ha- we haven't had student ministry in a few months. And so about a month ago, I remember saying, hey, Dan, I'm getting antsy. It's like, man, I just, I feel like I need to preach, you know. I was like, I need to. And so he put me on the schedule, and I'm just so thankful for opportunities. And fear not, students, February 10th. We are starting up student gatherings again. We're excited to do that um, as well. And can I just, uh, where are the kids, students in the room? Raise your hand. Raise, let's see. We got a big group. Come on, raise them up. We got a big group in this room, uh, a lot more than uh, first service, and I'm excited. Can I brag on you guys for a second? Is that okay? Oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> sure, I don't know if we said that. But, yeah, so we put out a challenge, uh, Berean students, January 1, over the first 90 days of 2021, to read through the New Testament. And so uh, many of them are doing that. And, and the tool we were going to use for that was the Bible app, which is cool because there's a reading plan. It tells you what to read every day. Students could join in. There's a, there's a discussion place where they can comment, hey, this stuck out to me. You know, I, I really like this verse. And uh, the problem is there's a limit on how many people can be in that group, 150 people. And we broke the Bible app in, in the set. So we, over 150 signed up. I had students and parents saying, hey, I want to do this too. How do I do it? I'm like, the group's full. I'm sorry. You know, just join the plan or get a, a printout of the plan. Can we just give an applause to our young people for being dedicated to the Word of God? Like, that, that is awesome. Man, God does provide in ways beyond what we could ask or imagine. And I am just so happy to be at a church that is filled with families who prioritize the Word of God. You know, Sarah and I, when we first visited Berean for the first time, one of the things that drew us here over five years ago, we sat down in the chair and we looked down the aisle, the row that we were in, and I saw study Bibles out on people's laps. And I knew, hey, if this is a place where God's people are getting serious about God's word, great things can happen. Amen? And let's be a people of the book together. Today we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 8, so you can open up your Bible if you have a smartphone. Don't feel guilty about my comment about study Bible. That's okay. Turn to 1 Corinthians 8. We're going to be there this morning and be looking at what God has for us. Have you ever felt like you ran into a wall? Have you ever had an experience or gone through a certain circumstance that just entirely deflated you? Maybe it was the word, a word that someone said, and man, it just hung over you like a cloud for days or weeks. And it took the air out of your lungs or the joy out of your step. You know, maybe it was like when the Buckeyes lost or something like that. You know, this could happen in a figurative way. It could be something that, oh, I just feel like I just, I just lost any energy or will to just move on. It can also happen in a very literal way. And this happened to me. If you could just uh, entertain this story real quick. 
about 10 years ago, Sarah and I were just married, and one of the things we liked to do was just go and run together in the evenings. And near our home was Brookville High School. It was kind of set up on a hill, and they had a track that was open during the week, and we could go, and we could just, we'd run some laps there. And so we would go together and just have, you know, a great time talking. It was BK before kids, and so we could just chill there as long as we wanted, enjoy adult conversation, and we'd have fun just running around the track. The problem was, it wasn't track season, it was football season. And so on the track in lane five, coming, coming out on the visitor's side, was some fence posts. I think it was to provide some distance in between the stands and the visiting team, you know, which makes sense, right? Okay, and so there's fence posts right out in the middle of the track. Well, for some reason, we were running in lane four, and I was in lane five. And so every time we went around the back stretch, you know, there's a fence post right in the middle, and we would kind of slide in and move, you know, and then for some reason, slide back out <laughs> every time. And we did it over and over again. And if you know me, I can kind of get uh, just so focused on something that I totally missed the point, all right? So we're just talking, having a good time, talking to my beautiful wife, Sarah, and we're just running along, and I come around the back stretch, smack right into the fence post. Yeah. And Sarah, my wife, filled with love and grace and mercy, she turns and says, are you serious? <laughs> you know, I think part of her is asking, are you really serious? I know, I know how you are. I know, I can't believe you. Yeah, so this is what happened. I, I, I kept running another half a lap. You know, I made it around, and I was like, okay, I'm done. This was me about an hour later. I ended up with a huge black eye. And of course, everyone asks, what happened? Well, my wife punched me. <laughs> Obviously, you know, no, I ran into a fence post. And, uh, you know, you don't get around one of those stories. But man, that just hurt. I mean, to imagine just, I don't know if you've ever tripped or walking in the dark and hit your coffee table or a wall, and you're just like, mm, and it, it just feel that pain. And, you know, you don't have to run into something physically. I think we all felt like that maybe in our lives. Maybe it was a loss of a loved one or a tragedy. Maybe it was 2020, right? And it was just like, man, I feel like I just ran into a fence post. And I think what God's word has to say to us today is that we have the unfortunate ability to be a fence post on the track of one another's spiritual life. We have the ability to be a fence post on the track of another person's, a brother's or sister's spiritual life. We can position ourselves in a way that is actually destructive to the faith of a brother or sister. And it ought not be so. God does not want that for us. See, we exist here at Berean, and if you know our mission statement, it is to be a community of Christ followers who are enjoying God together, growing in grace and truth, and taking life in Christ to the heart of Ohio and beyond. Look at that center phrase, growing in grace and truth. That's quite the dichotomy, isn't it? Two different aspects. And, and I think all of us, if you've lived some life, you've seen churches on either end of that spectrum. You have churches that are like all grace. Come as you are and stay as you are. It's okay. And then you have churches on the other side that are all truth and no grace. And it comes across like, Get your act together before you come in the door. Or pretend like you're, you have it all together. There's no signs of weakness. Oh, yeah, how you doing? Praise the Lord, brother. I'm doing great. All the time. And, and God doesn't want us to be in either one of those extremes, does he? He wants us to live in a place, in a tension between grace and truth. 
grace and truth. Some of our families are like this, aren't they? Okay, imagine you're eating dinner at your dining room table, right? And you've got some guests over, and someone in your family has some food on their chin, maybe in their goatee, right? Some of you are grace-filled families, and you're kind of like, you ignore it. You're like, ah, he'll figure it out. Maybe it'll fall off, you know? Or maybe you're like, hey, trying to, you know, don't want anyone else to see because not everyone might see, right? How many of you are grace-filled families? You're kind of like, Okay, a few of you, not, not really any of you, okay. And then you've got your truth-filled families. Hey, dude, something's on your chin. I'd want you to tell me, how do your truth-filled families, all right? You got food right there, big something. Yeah, it looks gross. you probably get that off, right? So we have that even in our families. We have kind of those extremes of grace and truth. But we know that God wants us to find a balance between graciously, persistently loving each other, right, and serving one another, being patient with one another, while at the same time being rigorously devoted to the truth. Holding both tightly. It's not weakening one or the other. It's holding on to both. I'm going to love with all that I am, and I'm going to share the truth with all that I am. I'm going to speak the truth in love. Corinth, the letter that we're looking at, the church at Corinth was out of balance here. They were out of balance. Some were standing for truth in such a way that they were like a fence post on the track of someone's spiritual life. Turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 8. And before we read the passage, I want to just explain the context. Remember last week, Pastor Dan, he shared about marriage from chapter 7. And in 7 through 16 in 1 Corinthians, Paul is answering questions regarding certain situations in the church of Corinth. And it's a cue in is that word now concerning. And so he's addressing different things that the church has brought up, either that he's heard through hearsay or maybe even some spiritual leaders wrote to him and said, hey, what am I supposed to do with this situation? And he says, now concerning. And the main idea that we're going to see in 8 through 10 is this meat offered to idols and kind of the conflict around that issue. And we're going to see what God has to say regarding that. And that main idea if you're looking for something to grab a hold of, you say, Phil, I need something bite-sized. I need something I can just hold on to for this week. It's love builds up. Now, I got a few kids in the room, and maybe parents, you can join in me. All right, kids, look up here. I want you to take this away, too. I want you to have something. I don't want this time to be wasted. Love builds up. Can you do that with me? Let's do it all together. Parents, do it with them. I'll invite two on teens. You guys do it. Love builds up. That's what God wants us to hear this morning. Before we look at 1 Corinthians 8, let's pray. Father, we need you to speak to us through your word today. So give us hearts that are responsive to your truth. Give us ears that are ready to hear your word. Give us minds ready to think deeply about difficult things. And give us hands to do what you want us to do this week and this year. God, we want to be not just individuals, not just families. We want to be a church that expresses grace and truth in a way that shocks the world. And so, God, would you work in this time and would you draw us closer to be an expression of your love and your truth? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, 1 Corinthians 8. I'm going to read through the passage and then we're going to kind of walk through it together. All right, 1 Corinthians 8, starting in verse 1. Now concerning, that's that key word, right? You'll see that a few times throughout the second half of 1 Corinthians. Now concerning food offered to idols. We know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. 
If anyone imagines that he knows anything, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many gods and lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Love builds up. Today for us, this means living in such a way that honors and prefers our brothers and sisters in Christ before ourselves. Like Philippians 2, do you prefer one another? Do you put their preferences before yourself? It's thinking about how we can edify their faith, build them up, not tear them down. Love builds up, right? At a first glance, I think this is a confusing idea, this idea of meat offered to idols. Like, what does that mean? And this is an especially hard word, I think, in our day and age, where we live in a culture that is all about me. It is all about my rights, about me expressing who I am. And if you're not okay with that, you just need to get with the program. And God says, here is a better way. Love builds up. It considers others. But what's this whole idea with meat offered to idols? Let me give you some context. Corinth was an incredibly religious culture. And and I don't mean that in a good way. They had many gods. They were uh, polytheistic. They worshipped all different gods. And they had temples. If you were to walk down Main Street in Corinth, you'd see a temple to this God, a temple to this God. It would be obvious. It's not like that in America. We have our idols, believe me, but they're not in the same way as visible um, like they would be in Corinth. And they believed in all these different gods, you know, gods of different parts of nature. They also believed in evil spirits. They believed in demons who were prowling around seeking to wreak destruction, and they would cause sickness and illness and and they would uh, lay waste in your body. They would bring bad fortune. And they believed that these evil spirits would seek to get into you by indwelling your food. And so when you ate, they would get inside of you. And so, being fearful that that might happen, what they did was they would offer their meat or their food as a sacrifice to these false gods, to these idols. They'd offer it as a sacrifice, and then they would eat it, hoping that instead of curses or sickness or illness, they would impart blessing to themselves and and maybe prosperity, that they would have good health. And so you have this situation where it was everywhere. I mean, the meat offered to idols was at the weddings, at the festivals, the funerals. It was like, hey, we want to make sure this food's protected. This is the good stuff, right? 
And it was part of every facet of culture, athletic events. It was there. And so it was incredibly difficult for a follower of Jesus to avoid this issue. You see that? And so you had a church seeking to deal with this issue. What do we do with all of this food, this meat offered to idols? And hence the conflict. You have two parties in the midst of this conflict. Okay, The, the one party we'll call the puffed up people, and the other, the weaker brothers. Now imagine, I don't know if any of you have ever even seen, uh, heard of church conflict. I don't know, I'm probably you know, never here, I'm sure, you, maybe not many of you, but I'm sure a few could bear witness to the fact that sometimes churches have infighting, right, over different things. Corinth was no different. They were in conflict around this idea of meat offered to idols. And so, you have the puffed up people on one side. And the thing with them is they had really good theology. They believed the right things. Look at verse 4. It says, they believed an idol has no real existence. It's just stone. It's just gold. That's nothing. There's only one God. We know that. It says, there is no God but one. And Paul agrees with their theology. Look at verse 8. Food will not commend us to God. We're no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. He kind of corrects superstition. He's like, no, this isn't, there's no demons in this food. There's no blessing from these false gods. It is just, it's just food. Agreeing with what Jesus said, right? It's not what goes into the, your mouth that corrupts you. It's what comes out of the heart. But what they were missing was a higher law. Not their ability to have freedom to eat it, but were they loving their brothers? Did they love their weaker brothers? So you had the puffed up people over here. They're like, hey, we could do it. It's no big deal. And then you have the weaker brothers. Now, these weaker brothers had grown up, and from early age, they had been taking part in eating this meat and this food offered to idols. And it was part of their idolatry, their worship of false gods. And for, so for them, it was like very meaningful, and it was wrapped up in paganism. It was wrapped up in unbelief. And so for that weaker brother, when they came to Christ, they, they put all of that aside. They didn't want to be near that temple. They didn't want that meat. They didn't want any of it because they said, me, turning to Christ is turning away from all of that. And again, it doesn't mean that there was any significance in that, but to them it was tied together. I think it's a little, you know, and verse 7 kind of represents their thought. However, not all possess this knowledge. They, they, didn't, they were immature in their theology. They hadn't arrived there yet, and it was still very sensitive to them. It says, but some through former association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. And so for them to go back and eat this would defile their conscience. I think a lot of us struggle to make the leap culturally, right, because it's hard to relate. So let me give you uh, something maybe a little closer to home. Imagine you have a child who grows up in the middle of Ohio, the heart of Ohio, and I mean, from day one, he's in a Buckeye onesie, okay? He's got, you know, the first word he says is, I-O, right? So from day one, he's just being wrapped up. He knows what Saturdays are for. Their game day. We're watching the game. And from day one, he grows up in it. And of course, when he gets to the point where he decides where to go to school, where is he going? Ohio State. And he lands there on campus. And he continues to be part of uh, everything. And he's indoctrinated in the liturgy of Ohio State. You know, he learns O-H-I-O. He learns every aspect of the tailgating and being part. The problem is, in the midst of that on campus, imagine this young man is pulled into not just 
the athletic event, but some of the things that go along with it. He starts getting wasted as part of that weekend experience. Imagine he gets pulled into um, just really relying all of his joy and his happiness on whether or not the Buckeyes win or they lose. And you could see it on his face. Imagine, you know, and maybe being slightly intoxicated, some things come out of his mouth that you wouldn't describe as quite wholesome when maybe there's a bad call. And so all of that is part of his and becomes part of his Buckeye experience, right? And then imagine that it's also not just the game, it's the after party. Think of all the the things that he gets involved in, and if it's a win, it's a party, and it goes all night. If they lose, he just goes the next few days in a drunken stupor. Imagine that that individual comes to Berean Baptist Church and, for the first time, meets Jesus. He meets Jesus, and he just, his life turns around, and he realizes all the things that he's been sowing into in his life. And he's like, man, uh, you know, all of those things I need to put off. But do you see how all those things that he associated with the Buckeyes, which, again, I'm not saying it's a sin to watch the Buckeyes or go down to the shoes. So don't, I don't want the emails. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying is in this, this individual, in this case, they closely associate their former life of depravity, of sin, with everything that is that experience, that game day experience. And imagine the first Sunday, you know, they're, they're coming to Christ, they get in a small group, and what does the small group do? Hey, we're going to watch the Buckeyes. And he's like, okay, and so they watch them. A few months later, hey, we're going to go to a game. You see where it starts to get a little trickier? Because for them, that whole experience down at the shoe was part of expressing their worldliness and their sin. And so for them, it's hard to have a cut dividing line. Let me say right now, it's not a sin to go to a Buckeyes game. But for that person, depending on the strength of their conscience, it might be. And so we need to learn how to love one another and love builds up. And this isn't simply a problem. I want to say right here as well, this is not simply a problem of someone not liking what you're doing. That's not the issue of conscience here, all right? It's not them feeling uncomfortable. It's like, hey, you know, I don't like that kind of music. Can you turn it off? You're offending me. I'm the weaker brother. That's not what it's talking about here. But, you know, a little further on, you remember 8 through 10, chapters 8 through 10, he unpacks this idea of meat offered to idols. And in verse 14 of chapter 10, he commands them to flee from idolatry, to flee. So I believe the issue here was that he was leading their activity, these know-it-alls, right? The puffed-up people were leading people back into idolatry, their former life. It'd be like you taking your friend down to the Buckeyes game who's turned to Christ, and then they just walk off to go to the tailgating, and you're like, no, no. And so it was doing destruction to that person's spiritual life. He says in verse 11, so by your knowledge, and I think by that he means acting out, like, yeah, you have the freedom to do this, but by you doing this, this weak person is destroyed. It's not just a simple trip. Oh, yeah, I messed up a little bit. It's a fence post in the lane on the track. And we have the ability by exercising our freedom to really hinder the growth of others in their spiritual life. You're literally leading them astray. So so making a brother stumble is serious. It's not just like, oh, I stumbled. It's like you are destroying their faith. You're leading them back to their old life. And here, Paul, in chapter 8, Paul addresses this issue, I think, with two main ideas. The first is this. Right theology is not enough. Right theology is not enough. Look at verse 1. 
Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Now, he's not criticizing knowledge. Okay, and this really bugs me, especially as a pastor who's gotten to shepherd students for a while. I despise Christianity that is not intellectual. Okay, it's not just, oh, just you got to believe, and that's enough. Believe me, with this next generation, if we don't give them reasons to believe and challenge their intellect with faith-filled obedience to God's word and, and even express why we believe you could trust God's word, you're going to lose them. We're going to lose the next generation. We need to be a knowledge-filled, have an intellectual faith. So he's not criticizing knowledge here. And throughout 1 Corinthians, he's actually praised being knowledgeable and knowing biblical truth. In chapter 1, verse 5, he says, I give thanks that in everything you are enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge. He's given thanks. I'm so glad that you're filled with spiritual knowledge. In chapter 3 and 6, which we've gone through, he says, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Don't you know? It's so important that we know. Theology is not the enemy here. We need to rightly divide the word of truth. We need to be people who develop our minds. In chapter 15, he says, Some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. So he's not criticizing knowledge. He's criticizing a certain kind of knowledge, a knowledge that puffs up. Because we know, Proverbs 9.10, fear of the Lord is beginning of wisdom. Knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. God wants you to grow in knowledge. Young people, challenge your minds. Think deeper. Understand God's word. Search for him. Let's develop our minds. Let's be a church that develops our minds. But let's not fall for the danger of being all truth and no grace. Love builds up. Paul here is criticizing a kind of knowledge that is more of a superiority. It's a self-righteousness. It's a, I'm better than you because my theology is right. It's standing high and proud in my Christian liberty and all that I know instead of stooping low and kneeling and washing my brother or sister's feet. He says, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. Verse 2. He says, you think you know but by your actions that are not loving, you don't. You don't know. You have a heart issue. You think you're better than others. See, right orthodoxy does not always lead to right orthopraxy. Having the right beliefs in your mind is not enough. And you know this, because James 2, if you remember, he says, you believe in one God, you do well. So do demons, and they fear him. And what does he challenge the believers there to do? He says, faith without works is dead. And you had these Corinthian believers that were so filled with their higher theology and they knew all the right answers, but they were failing to love their brothers and sisters and leading them back into idolatry. So they'd missed the point. Berean, we, we could have the best preaching in town. We, we could have the most spiritually educated congregation you know, we, we could send out hundreds of missionaries. We could start a seminary and train up the next generation to plant churches and go to the furthest most parts of the globe in the name of Jesus. But if we fail to love one another, we've missed the point. We've missed the heart of the gospel. Knowledge is not enough. Right doctrine is not good enough. Truth without grace falls flat on its face. Truth without grace falls flat on its face. So 
Paul presents a better way. He says, right doctrine, right theology is not enough. Love builds up. Look at verse 11. He says, and so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died. Love sees every brother or sister as someone Christ died for. Did you know that? Look around. Think about your family, your friends. Think about that person in the hallway that you try to avoid. That person you try to avoid that awkward conversation with. There's someone that Christ died for. Love sees every person as someone that Christ loved and died for. Love realizes that wounding a brother is sin against them and God. Look at verse 12. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. It's serious. It's not that, oh, they just need to get over it. When you're leading a brother or sister back into their sin because of your own exercise in Christian freedom, it's serious. Love seeks first to build up and prefer my brother or my sister before myself, over and above expressing my freedom in Christ. Verse 13 says, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Paul says, I don't need it that much. I don't need to exercise my freedom if it means costing my brother, causing my brother to stumble, to lead to destruction. You know, when Paul summarizes 8 to 10, they got this whole section that we're going to be talking through different elements of. In chapter 10, verse 23 and 24, he says this, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. And it's so hard for us in our individualistic culture to actually live for the sake of others. But do you realize that each of us have the power and the potential to either be a launching pad, um, a trampoline into greater Christ-likeness for our brothers and sisters, or to be a fence post in the middle of a track. It's so important how we consider one another. This theme is like a thread that Paul ties through this whole book of 1 Corinthians. And he kind of summarizes it to some degree in chapter 12, right at the end, and then into chapter 13. He says, and I will show you a more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. And then I think we all know in 1 Corinthians 13 how he describes the nature of this love that God desires for us to show to one another. Love builds up. Love builds up. Right, kids? Love builds up. Paul closes his letter in 1 Corinthians 16, 14 by saying this, let all that you do be done in love. Is Paul repeating himself too much? Am I? Love builds up. Do we consider one another? Now, specifically in 1 Corinthians 8, it is so critical that we understand Paul is talking about this issue of conscience. And I want to give you a framework real quickly to think through different issues that you may encounter or conflicts that you might encounter and how to deal biblically with them. Because in the, in the place of conscience, in this, when this happens, when we have this crisis of conscience where you might have to withhold your Christian liberty 
for the sake of a brother, we need to know what we're talking about here. I said already, it's not just your, your preference, right? And so I want to introduce you to something called a, a biblical moral triage. And that's a big word. If you're in the medical field, you know a triage is you kind of decide what is the urgency of this individual. Okay, if I walk in and I've got like a big bump on my head and I'm like, I need help. I've got a do- I need a doctor. And then someone else walks in and their hand's like hanging from a limb and blood is squirting out. Okay, sorry to be kind of you know, graphic. But imagine that. They're going to say, Phil, you're okay. I think you're all right. You're standing. We need to do this. That's a triage. And we need to have the same kind of a tool in our families, in our church, in your life as you think through different situations you might experience. And again, this is, uh, this is from Matthew Haste. He's a professor at Southern Seminary. It's original to him. But I think it's really helpful for us because I want us to be, I think it's good when you're in a tough conversation, be talking along the same terms or the same lines. So God, in his word, he reveals commands. That's the first category. We're going to have four categories. God reveals commands. That's clear. We should all be able to, for the most part, agree. God commanded this. We should obey. Okay, if someone's sinning, It's not like, oh, well, I don't want to, like, judge them. I don't want to cause them to stop. No, they're sinning, and we need to call that out. Speak the truth in love, always in love. But we need to say, hey, you're going down the wrong road. 1 Corinthians 8 is not talking about a command. All right? But those are clear. We can have an agreement in that. After that, Scripture provides wisdom. It provides wisdom. And for this, God doesn't speak directly to that issue all the time. And if you have, if you grab one of the bulletins, by the way, it, it, if you grab it on the way out, if you didn't grab one, it's got all this laid out with some added notes because I think this is a really useful tool for us to have. But wisdom is more applying God's principles to certain actions, things that you might be going through. You say, hey, well, what's the outcome? You know, yeah, it's not necessarily wrong to marry this person. They're a believer, but they're kind of immature. You know, I, they're not really dedicated to the Lord like I would like. And so you start applying wisdom and saying, hey, well, you know what? That might not be the best decision. It's not necessarily wrong to go to a certain college or school, but you have to ask yourself, am I glorifying God by doing this? And can I do that? That takes more wisdom. And I think we can have great agreement along those lines, but sometimes there's disagreement as well. How much debt is too much? Some people would act like, no debt is, uh, debt's always wrong. You know, I think that simplifies certain issues, right? Another issue that you might talk about is like alcohol. God commands, forbids drunkenness. He says, it's wrong to be a drunkard. It's wrong to be drunk. Well, wisdom applied says, okay, where then does that fit? And, and to, to, to what does that mean, you know? And so we start applying God's scripture. Well, after wisdom, we have this area of conscience. And this is where this love builds up principle needs to apply. Your conscience is when biblical Wisdom meets personal experience. Think back to the Buckeyes game. Is it wrong to go to a Buckeyes game? No. Is it unwise? Well, maybe if you're a Michigan fan, okay? But if you're a Buckeyes fan, no, it's not necessarily unwise as long as you're driving safely, you know, as long as you're not, you know, being reckless, as long as you have the financial means maybe to pay $8,000 for a ticket, you know, maybe that's okay. But for that young man, it might be a sin for him to enter back in because it could tempt him, it could draw him. And so with conscience, personal experience really affects your decision there to follow and to please Christ. The last category I think we can apply as we deal with situations is preference. And that's based on personal opinions and background. God is silent on it. God's principles are silent on it. And it's just like, hey, Pastor Phil, we really need a banjo on the stage. And it's not going to be worship until we get a banjo. 
you know? And then you have another person who's like, I can't worship unless it's lights out and I can't see anyone. And I have to only hear, I can't hear my own voice. I can't hear anything else. I can't worship unless it's that. That's an issue of preference. You know the sad thing in the church? Most of our conflict comes back to preference. It's not about what God commands generally. Sometimes it is, but it's not. I wish it was more. It's not really even about applying God's wisdom. Sometimes it's a little bit conscience because of personal experience meeting wisdom. But a lot of times it's preference. And so we need to be able to think through these things biblically. We need to think through these things and use our minds and say, hey, let's, let's level the playing field. Maybe in your, your marriage you're having a conflict around a certain issue. Ask yourselves, are we violating any of God's commands? Are we following God's wisdom? Or is maybe is your experience and your following Jesus, does it affect this issue that we're dealing with? Or maybe this is just a preference thing. I like the toilet paper to go the one direction. That's, that's basically in the Bible. Like that God said that, right? And so it levels the playing field. And really what should be as a matter of most urgency for us is that his commands and wisdom. And then after that, loving one another. Because love builds up. I, I challenge you with your family to maybe work through some issues that maybe are hard to understand with your teens or your kids and, and help them understand how to think through this. But here in the area of conscience, Paul's message for us is to seek to build one another up in love. And as I conclude, I want to ask you, to be honest with yourself, are you a fence post in the middle of a track of someone's spiritual life? Do you think more about expressing your Christian freedom and what you can do or about who you can be to love your brother or your sister? Love builds up by denying myself and my freedoms in Christ for the sake of my brother or sister in Christ. You know, we have an excellent path to follow in Jesus. He had all authority, all honor, all power, complete rule of the universe, in heaven, all glory due his name. And what does he do? He takes on the nature of a servant. He comes down being made in human likeness. He takes on human flesh. He lives among us, comes down into our mess. And he lives a perfect life, always loving, always speaking the truth, grace and truth together. And he realizes the potential of both, realizing, I want to forgive I want to forgive you, but there's a penalty for sin. And so he dies on the cross to take that penalty for us as an ultimate expression of his love for us. If Jesus can stoop that low, can't we? To love one another. Grace or truth, it needs to be both. Do you love in such a way so as to build up others? Think about your social media feed and what you post. Think, are, are you ready to man, just win the argument and show how intellectual you are and how good your theology are? Or are you more concerned about loving a brother or sister and drawing them closer to Jesus? Do you think more about how you can correct someone and their poor theology or about how you can get down on your knees and wash their feet? Who has God put in your life to love and to serve? What if we as a church were a community of believers that were filled with grace and truth. I think the world would be in awe of how good it was to be part of the family of God. 
how loving of a place this would be. What would it feel like when people walked into the building? What kind of impact would we have on this community for the glory of God and our own good if we built each other up in love? Love builds up. Let's pray. Father, we need you and your Spirit's help to do this and to be this. God, we, we tend towards extremes. Lord, I tend to think of myself first. Lord, would we die to ourselves and live to you? Would we be a people of God that are filled with grace and truth? By this, all men will know that you're, that you're our God and that we're your disciples by our love for one another. In Jesus' name, amen.